Welcome to the Magnificast. Uh, Dean is still on vacation, uh, so uh, this week I'm here with my friend Zach Demili. Uh, Zach is um, he has an MDiv from Duke University. He has ordination plans, and he's an all-around very cool and knowledgeable person about church history and theology. Um, so because I have such a theologically oriented person uh, with me, we're going to talk over Leonardo Boff's uh, Ecclesiogenesis. Before we get started, though, let me quickly remind everyone that the Magnificast Virilio Reading Group is starting next week on July 11th. So if you haven't, uh, you can get signed up on our Patreon account. All you have to do is just donate a dollar and you get into the reading group. It's just that simple. And you can get all the, we'll, we'll send you, we'll send you some PDFs. You'll get in the reading group. It'll be a good time. start like we do every week and uh just catch up with one another uh all right zach what did you what did you do this week uh well as you know i'm moving to new haven connecticut soon because my wife got into uh yale's phd program in theological ethics so i spent most of the week that i wasn't working uh arranging moving things so getting movers uh reserving hotel rooms for our drive there. This is a lot of fun. It's not a lot of fun. Really. It's not really though. No. No. It's the um I guess what's the the opposite of fun? Uh sorrow. Heart, yeah, it was sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just engaged in quite a lot of intentional sorrow this week, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh I've been getting ready for the summer class that I'm teaching. Oh, what was the uh, class on? Uh it's just like the 101 media studies comm class. Okay. Yeah, we're reading this really rad book by Michelle Sarah called Thumbelina. Oh, uh, Michael Sarah, I didn't know he was no, 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 into... No, 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 Michelle Sarah. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> That's a... Wow. The audience is going to love that joke. Yeah, uh, I've really tapped into, like, uh, there's an there's an untapped Michael Sarah joke market. No one's making them. Yeah. No, no, one, no one is. He, uh, Michael Sarah, shows up in the uh, new Twin Peaks... And um, he is, like, the funniest character in the entire show. Oh, man. I haven't seen the old Twin Peaks. I, Dean hasn't seen it either. Oh. And uh, that's okay. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but Michael Sarah shows up in the new Twin Peaks. This isn't really a spoiler alert, but he's, like, a... Um, he is, like, a... Um, he's Robot the... ninja, psych, <laughs> psycho... No, uh... but better than that, though, he's, like, the chi- the child of these other beloved characters, and he is a, like, motorcycle-driving... Um, poet, <laughs> and uh, he has like a lisp, and it's very funny. It's all very good. Yeah, New uh, Twin speech Peaks. impediments are just comedic gold. I know, I love it. Yeah, love love them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool man. Um, well, this week, uh, as promised, is about Leonardo Boff's uh, Ecclesiogenesis. Uh, I'm 100% certain that Dean is going to be mad that he's like not here for this conversation because I know that he likes it, I think. I feel like that we've talked about that before in private, not on the podcast. Um, so we'll probably have to like circle back around to this some other time when Dean's, Dean's here. But, well, uh, he'll have to correct us as well because it's two Protestants talking about Catholic theology. So 
we're bound to screw up. 100% wrong from the very beginning, yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, but anyways, we're going to do it. Uh, so Zach uh, is a person who has been to Divinity School. How about that? How about it? Um, you've, you've written about uh, church hierarchy and church organization before. I saw you do a paper on it, so I know that that's real. Yeah, you didn't you didn't imagine that. I really did that. It was really it really happened. It did. In which my pastor was in the room and he was nonplussed. Yeah, not, a lot of pastors were were uh, lacking in the plus. Yeah, I know. It, they thought you were trying to kick them out. Yeah, I mean, I, not that I wasn't, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember the look on his face after the presentation. He was like, uh, he was asked a clarifying question. So what you're saying is like that the church shouldn't really have a hierarchy, and you're like, yeah. He said, okay. like he was kind of mad about it but he didn't really want to make a scene yeah uh well he i mean i i know i know him rather well and he kind of likes hierarchy yeah uh leonardo boff doesn't hate hierarchy either so you know it's not an unpopular opinion to have I mean, hierarchy has its places for sure. <laughs> um, it's uh, so Leonardo Boff is cool, and this book uh, Ecclesiogenesis is also cool because there's lots of crisscrossing of streams uh, in terms of like le- like uh, uh, like a Ghostbusters kind of streams. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's like you know, lots of crisscrossing. I'm sorry, crisscrossing currents. Yeah, I don't um, know. Did this? I think this. What year did Ghostbusters come out? I think this is pre-Ghostbusters. This is. I organized sure my life. The same same year. I don't know. No idea. I want it to be now. Well, okay. Okay. Um. Well, anyways, there's lots of crisscrossing <laughs> currents between like sort of like the like general like leftist political movements and like what's going on in, in regards to Christian hierarchy in this book. Like lots of sort of similar themes, uh, especially in regards to. Um, like horizontalism and decision making and democracy and liberation and all those kinds of really good words I like saying. Um, but before we even get as far as, as that kind of stuff, maybe we can just start from like a really basic place. Um, so the basic place we can start with is like, what like what is a church and why is hierarchy so tied up in the idea of church? What do you think, Zach, as a... Um, as a as a divinity man and sometimes pastor man, what do you think about those questions? Uh, so the the question of so is this you want to know Boff's opinion or my own? Uh, I mean, like both. An aside. Yeah, I mean, like I think both. I think it's good to it's good to get both of those things going. I mean, just yeah. generally, like what is church and why is a hierarchy associated with it? Yeah, those are those are opinions of, of yours that I want. Okay, well, I'll start with Boff, uh, just so I don't forget. Um, but um, for Boff, the the church is the the Catholic Church, um, but it's not limited to what he calls the visible church. Um, the church he says is there. There's a greater church than the church that we see, um, which is a good starting point for any ecclesiology, I think. Um, but when it gets down into the nitty gritty of what the visible church is, which is the question that Leonardo Boff is more concerned with is uh, the church as a sacramental presence of unity. Um, and so it's sacramental in the sense that it, um, in its particularities, in its congregations and uh, parochial instances, are uh, in a sense the church holy, but they're not uh, in any sense the whole church. And so in this way... 
different like little uh instantiations of the church uh exceed themselves in meaning and while that's not something that i disagree with i would like to push both further or just any ecclesiology further into a strong recognition of the invisible church oh i shouldn't say invisible that's kind of a loaded term but the what we mean when we say church um beyond the visible church hmm. So the church is a place where you go and you get the sacraments, all that good, good sacrament stuff. Yeah. But it's also some other things, too. Yeah. And so... Could I mean, you say, like, more concretely what the other things are uh, besides sacraments? <laughs> um, so for, uh, for both, and I, I think I would agree with this, uh, the church is a visible sign of the kingdom that is coming. Um, it's... A group of people who attempt, at the very least, to comport their lives um, according to how they understand the vision of the kingdom of God. Um, so, so, like Bible studies, uh, small small group meetings. <laughs> yeah, well, these, these church summer camp. Perfect. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, is there a? I'm sure there are Catholic summer camps. Oh uh, yeah, I would guess. We'll get. We'll fact check that with Dean. I mean, like, why wouldn't there be? I don't know. There's an everything summer camp. I bet you're right. I I know I'm right. (laughs) Okay, so amongst uh, summer camps, small group meetings, potlucks, there are actually things, though, like the sacraments, like getting Eucharist or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever them them Catholics are up to. and attached to the like the sort of sacramental practices, there's also like a church hierarchy. Um, so are sacraments and hierarchy connected? Um, they very much are for the Catholic Church. Maybe a lot of your listeners may know. Um, I imagine, given the, the content of your past podcast, most of them are Catholic and everyone else kind of left. Um, <laughs> uh, the Catholic Church traces its authority to preside over the sacraments at all to the institution of the church by Christ in the person of Peter, the rock of the church. So in this this sense, the authority to preside over sacraments is written into um, the very understanding of the church as like, like a, a body at all. Yeah, that's that sounds like what I remember from uh, my, <laughs> my, like my church history class when yeah. I was in college. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. There's Dwayne the Rock Johnson, who's uh, keeping the hierarchy of the church. And, that's correct. Um, that's right. And Hulk Hogan's on the outside. He can't come in. That's right. Uh, no Hulkamaniacs allowed. He's the ones, he's one of the ones who's cast into the outer dark. <laughs> There's gnashing of teeth. Yeah. It's just, uh, I mean, he's ripping his clothes. That's, yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> oh my God. He's enacting a prophetic, he's, it's a prophetic reenactment of, uh, or for enactment. Yeah. Of. The eschaton. That's wrestling. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, sounds good. Well, um, but... <laughs> okay, I mean, like, okay. Um, but so the... Right, there's a hierarchy connected to the sacraments because the church is sort of, like, in charge of them, right? Yeah. Um, and the hierarchy is there to... Like, it's sort of like an exclusionary function. Does that sound right? Like, you got to keep some people out and some people in. Uh, so that is a way that it functions. That's um, so hierarchies. The way that they're generally used in organizations is a way of defining uh, 
who has authority and who does not, who is allowed to, in this instance, preside over the sacraments and who is not, who is allowed to partake of the sacraments and who is not. These are all decisions made hierarchically um, with a head or heads of institutions or bodies making these sort of uh, uh, universal decisions um, generally without recourse to certain particularities or contextual realities. Um, liberation theology, um, which started as a primarily uh, Catholic movement in Latin America, uh, was pushing against this uh, particular way of looking at hierarchies. Um, and so they found themselves, uh, the, the early liberationists like Gustavo Gutierrez and Leonardo Boff, among, among others, found themselves uh, hard-pressed to critique a kind of cosmology that was put forward by Jacques Maritain, who is a French Catholic theologian um, who, uh, whose theology was very influential in the Catholic Church understanding itself as uh, one sphere or representing one sort of cosmic sphere um, and the worldly leaders representing another worldly sphere. And so they, uh, taking their cues from this sort of uh, dual cosmology, they ceded the wor their worldly authority to uh, worldly leaders, presidents, uh, leaders of nations, um, and contented themselves to have authority exclusively on the spiritual lives of their members. Um, this had catastrophic consequences in Latin America, where uh, governments, particularly ones backed by uh, the United States, enacted horrible policies. Um, Chile was particularly bad under Pinochet. William Cavanaugh, who is Catholic, uh, wrote about this connection in uh, Torture and Eucharist, uh, yeah. where he talks about the, the damage that Mary Tan's theology had on the Catholic Church's relationship to the people who were uh, oppressed and terrorized by their own government in Chile. Um, and so what Boff is doing, which is a, uh, an interesting and uh, characteristic liberationist turn, is imagining hierarchy as connected to and very much in service of the uh, local communities, or what he calls the base communities. Um, cool, that's a good segue into what Boff is all about um, and laying out sort of like the actual issues that play at hierarchy. I think it's helpful so we can like actually understand more of the book. So maybe you could just, uh, so the book is called Ecclesiogenesis. Maybe you could kind of give us an overview of like what, what Boff's actually talking about. Yeah, so I mean, apart from having like a super cool name, uh, Ecclesiogenesis is in, in large part a response to... Uh, kind of a, a historical crisis in the Catholic Church um, in Latin America. Um, and this is a, a crisis that is actually occurring in uh, at least the United States as well. Yeah, I think that's right. But less to, not as drastically. Yeah. Um, it's, and the, the crisis is a, is a priest sh shortage. Um, so he says, uh, one stat he gives is that um, – at one point, there were 1.8 priests to every 10,000 of the faithful, which is just 
uh, bonkers ratio there. And so um, in a church that is organized hierarchically and which distributes the sacraments through the authority given in the sacrament of orders, which is um, the very Catholic way of saying that they're ordained, um, that's the language he uses at least, um, uh, of being given the sacrament of orders. Um, there's like a real problem in uh, the parishioners' access to the sacraments where kind of like the old circuit riders in the United States uh, in like the 1800s, um, some people will only uh, partake of mass uh, once or twice a year at most, um, which is a real problem for Catholics. Right. So, in, yeah, that makes sense. There's not enough There's not enough uh, ordained priests to give out the sacraments, to give Eucharist, to do confession, all those kinds of things. Yeah, so confession, baptism, marriages, um, and just generally being brought up in the church becomes uh, kind of a challenge. And so... Uh, in the in this sort of vacuum of authority arose these grassroots organizations that Boff refers to as base communities. Um, and so these base communities are uh, just like small units that are affiliated with the Catholic Church. They are, uh, as at least as I understand it, they are they are baptized Catholics who have organized these communities specifically for the purpose of continuing to engage in the life of faith as best they know how. They have de facto leaders um, and they operate a lot like churches do, but just there's no ordained leadership, um, which is a sacramental, a bit of a sacramental crisis. Right. That, that makes sense. So the basic community is, is there sort of like a stopgap, right? It's just like, it's doing, it's doing all the things that lay people can do. Um, without, you know, it does all the church stuff without doing any of the, uh, the sacramental magic. Right. So just like, it's just like going to like a Baptist church, (laughs) but probably better. (laughs) Well, maybe. I mean, like, think about how many times, like, uh, like the, those, those dang Baptists out there have taken, taken Eucharist. Uh, once. Do they, do they only do it once? Like once a quarter. Oh, no way. Oh, dude, that's like all Protestants. Oh. Except I grew up doing it once a month. Oh, really? Yeah. We did, uh, so I grew up in a Nazarene church, and we did it once a quarter, so... Uh, Man, so you were, like, starving. Yeah, By the super. time, like, the quarter came around. Yeah. What, how did you, like, was it, like, a spring, summer, winter, fall type, like... Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it it was, was, and even, like, more messed up than that, too, it was, uh, it was only at, like, the evening church, like, not even during regular church. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um... One time, one time, so the church I go to now, uh, we do it all the time. All the, all the Hawaiian bread and Welch's grape juice you can eat, uh, every, every day. But, uh, sometimes when I tell Protestant friends or family about that, they're like, oh, doesn't that ruin it for you? Like getting it every single day? It's like, no. Yeah. Uh, no, actually it's awesome. See, these are people who have been, who've bought into the scarcity uh, economy that capitalism demands. Oh man, that's I, a good. That's a good thing. Uh, I mean, that's a good like, insight. That's not a good thing they do that. I'm just saying, yeah. like, it's probably true. Well, I mean, we think that, like, generally, like, by we and generally, I mean Americans or Westerners in capitalist nations, like, we ascribe value to things that are more scarce. Um, and so if communion is plentiful then it's not as valuable. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's in my, I've worked in a couple of Methodist churches and I grew up in a Methodist church and that's very much the attitude around uh, communion is that if it, if we do it too much, then it's not going to be special anymore. Right. Um, uh, but let me just, let me just be the first in this conversation to say that is dumb as hell. That's like such a stupid opinion. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it does, it's not like, a. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there are other things that we do every week in church, like say the Lord's prayer. Yeah. Um, and this is what I would always tell parishioners who would, who would say like, well, I don't want to do communion every week because then it's not going to feel special anymore. Um, but I mean, we sing similar hymns, but we it's like sing the same doxology most weeks yeah. and the Lord's prayer. And while these things can come to like feel rote, a lot of times that's just like the precursor to experiencing the abundance of meaning present in these gifts from God. But like, listen, I go to the dentist like maybe once a year if like, if I'm lucky <laughs> and it's never special. Yeah. I do it seldomly. You would want to do it even spe- less. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah. Dumb thing. <laughs> well, some people treat communion like, like the dentist. Yeah. So they, they'll, they'll, people will leave church before they even, cause it makes church go longer. So they're going to like miss the football game or something. So no, they will live. <laughs> that's they like, will straight that's up peak leave. Protestant logic. They will leave before service is over. So they can miss communion, so they don't stay ten minutes longer. But I mean, like communion's like the best part. I agree. I mean, they're probably thinking that they just want to like beat the Baptists to like the, the golden corral, the brunch. <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know. That's where the real Eucharist is. Yeah, <laughs> you got to dip your donut in the chocolate fountain. <laughs> I assume that's what they, they have there. Do they do that? At I golden saw. Corral? I saw a commercial ones with donuts and chocolate fountains. I don't know. I've been to a golden corral exactly one time, and they did have a chocolate fountain and a cotton candy machine. What? It's like disgusting. It's not even so, food. <laughs> it's like I mean, it's sugar. Sugar's food. Yeah, but way. like, yeah, I mean, I mean, but like, <laughs> it's gross though. Like, it's like that's like carnival food. Like, oh, oh yeah, we also have funnel cake over here and uh, <laughs> uh, fried Snickers bar. Perfect. Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's a Golden Corral like 20 minutes from here. You want to go? No. No, I don't. Me either. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, so church hierarchy is really important uh, uh, to yeah, think about. Church hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, but the the lack of ordained people. Uh, I, I'm sorry. The lack of ordained <laughs> men. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> makes that's, that's a very important distinction for Catholics. Yeah, makes uh makes doing the church thing kind of difficult. Uh, but Boff's point is that, like, hey, there's actually other church stuff we can do, and um, maybe we should rethink, uh, like, that, that base, basic communities actually do something for the church. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, so he does say that, but he, he takes it further. So first, he says that the base communities uh, are, well, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is The Base Communities Reinvent the Church. Um, and so clearly he thinks that these smaller communities have something very important to say to the the larger church. Um, but he also thinks that there are, uh, there's, there's cause to um, think of these communities themselves as sacramental instantiations of the church and that lay people can in fact preside over the sacraments. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I think that's cool at least, but that kind of, that ruffles some feathers in the Catholic hierarchy at large though, huh? 
yeah, they they generally are opposed to that sort of thing. Yeah. So the the Catholic Church uh, holds apostolic succession uh, very highly, um, as do a lot of uh, denominations in terms of how they define the authority of pre- presidents over a sacrament. Um, and what apostolic succession is is uh, the understanding that one's authority comes uh, straight from Christ. There's like a direct line of like authority from Jesus ordaining Peter to be the rock of the church, Peter ordaining um, other people whose names that maybe I should know, having uh, read the Bible in my time, but I don't. Um, and on Stone and Cold on. Steve Austin. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Undertaker was one of them, I believe. Uh, who can forget the great uh, martyr Randy Orton? Uh, <laughs> Hacksaw Jim Duggan. That's a that's a wrestle man. Yeah, million dollar man. Uh, who became an evangelical Christian himself. Yeah. Um, I read his autobiography. My youth minister gave it to me. That's us. When I, when I was, that's a good youth minister, honestly. Yeah. Sting. He's a Sting. wrestler. He's obviously uh been ordained by the apostle peter uh, <laughs> um making that joke work yeah <laughs> hey all the apostles are wrestlers now <laughs> yeah we could get uh just gonna try and come up with like a pun no but i got nothing yeah don't. i couldn't think of enough wrestlers names i was thinking like something with kane the wrestler mm-hmm. and kane the brother of abel uh, man you were really grasping was, i was yeah <laughs> are there any bible themed wrestlers other than kane uh, I mean, Jacob wrestled God at the Jabbok. Well, yeah, but that's not... He wasn't in WWE. You don't know. That's true. Uh, that's know? the next season of Supernatural. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that seems like the trajectory that this show's been going. Yeah, man. Some One of the writers has been waiting in the wings of that for, like, three seasons. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, so, Epistock Secession, though, that that's... <laughs> <laughs> that that's that lineage, uh, yeah. that lineage makes it like uh, not work. That that yeah. Well, so the hierarchy has to be there, huh? Um, yeah, the hierarchy is the means by which power is or authority is granted, um, and uh, you know someone someone trains up in the church, um, takes on the sacrament of orders. Uh, they have to like go to seminary and get an education at a Catholic school. Um, and these are all things that are kind of like the 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 makeup of a church with a scarcity of priests and therefore a scarcity of people to uh, like train up people. Uh, that's I mean that kind of makes the situation worse, um, less tenable over time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Just a lack of personnel. Yeah. For like a really intensive situation. Uh, here's a kind of a weird question uh, that I don't know the answer to, and maybe you don't either. Uh, maybe Dean could tell us someday when he's back. Uh, I miss Dean so much. Oh my god, we like Skype a ton. He's just like not been around. He's been in Hawaii. He probably doesn't miss you very much then. No, not even a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> um. Anyways, so uh, thinking thinking back to like my, my one church history course I ever took. I remember a little heresy called Donatism, uh, where the the church folks, um, you know, they they would uh, they would want to be rebaptized because their priest may have uh, backslidden or whatever. Yeah, well, that's very uh, Wesleyan language of you to use. <laughs> <clears throat> their hearts weren't strangely warm. Yeah, 
Uh, because they were, like, uh, persecuted and, like, deconverted because of, like, the intense situation. Yeah, so uh, the the Donatists were a group of people in the early church around uh, around the 300s. Um, I'm not super clear on the exact dates. Um, but uh, the Donatists followed, oddly enough, a fellow named Donatus. Um, and what they taught were that uh, priests who had presided over baptisms or uh, confessions or uh, any other sacrament, um, these, if these priests who presided over the sacraments lapsed uh, under persecution, um, where they would renounce, they would be like brought in front of a tribunal of some kind and made to renounce the name of, of Christ. Um, and if they did this, they were considered lapsed. Um, the Donatists taught that sacraments presided over by the lapsed priests were not valid. So one's baptism was not valid uh, if your priest was lapsed. And this created like a, a bit of a, like a, just an absolute uproar um, and a lot of like paranoia over whether or not one's baptism was ever valid. <laughs> so uh, people would get baptized by priests like multiple times just you know hoping that one was actually valid because you never knew if the sacrament was valid because your priest could lapse in the future right well the reason i bring that up though is because the the resolution of that situation was that like uh in the in like receiving a sacrament it's it's like god doing the work not the priest yeah so like so why is it important that the priest like uh presides over the eucharist rather than the laity uh so i don't really know no Uh, yeah uh this was this was augustine's argument against the donatists apart from uh advocating that they be tortured (laughs) until until they were uh in line with orthodoxy yeah uh he said that the donatists were very silly people because but tortured though yeah oh yeah uh okay hey i mean like uh, gotta do what you gotta do i yeah. guess actually i think that's really bad but uh yeah. i don't know different time augustine i guess knew what he's doing no nah, he didn't yeah well. uh, but what he did know i'm just like not a fan that... of torture but i don't know how to deal with that kind of stuff man <laughs> uh i just like to make snide comments about it and then not let it like affect my theology yeah maybe that's bad probably nah. i don't know <laughs> it's a dark uh, history there <laughs> um but Augustine's refutation of the Donatists was basically saying, like, hey, it's not the the priest or uh, even the the um, like the holiness of the person uh, receiving the sacrament that really matters for the sacrament. It is God's action through and through. And so, uh, with this with this logic, he he refuted the Donatists by saying, like, well, you know, the baptism. Of a, even a lapsed priest is of course valid because it's not the holiness of the priest that matters it's the holiness of god um what i don't understand and hopefully dean can clarify we'll have to do you'll well you'll have to do an episode where dean just like cleans up the mess that we made yeah um i hope john heaps has listened to this one he'll be very upset oh yeah us. we'll get like angry tweets later <laughs> <laughs> uh so what i don't understand as uh, somebody with uh, a master's degree in mm-hmm. theology, uh, is why ordination matters for the presiding over sacraments. Yeah, I don't get it either. Um, 
the Catholic Church does recognize the authority of lay people to preside over sacraments in times of dire need. So if somebody's like gonna die, mm-hmm. um, and like a an ordained priest can't get there, um, a lay person can baptize or administer the last rites, uh, as I understand it. Um, but what Augustine's like argument means for me is that like the sacraments are just God doing stuff, and if my holiness as somebody who from time to time presides over the sacraments doesn't mean a whole lot to the efficacy of the grace affected and neither does the holiness of the person partaking of the sacrament yeah uh it's not it's not really clear to me why like you can't preside over the sacraments right Um, but that's oddly enough that's not anything boff even touches in in his book yeah he doesn't mention the donatists at all you know, um, it's actually like not only a Catholic thing either, though. I was gonna, I was about to make like sort of like a stupid pithy comment, but like, hey, you know, it's awesome. I don't have to care about this because I'm a Protestant. But actually, one time um, when I was sexting at St. Paul's, uh, sorry, listeners, this is a story you probably don't understand. <laughs> I worked at a church. I was basically the janitor um, <laughs> with a fun title. Anyways, I did morning prayer one morning, and none of the uh, None of the clergy were there. So, like, I don't know, like, just going to do it because, like, why not? Yeah. I'm the janitor. It seems like I'm a good person yeah. to do it. And you being fully appraised of Augustine's reputation of the Donatist well, knew it was within your power and plus, to affect the grace of God. <laughs> plus the pastor said, like, hey, I'm not going to uh, – if I'm not here, you can just do it. <laughs> uh, see, in the Free Methodist Church, I'm pretty sure that counts. Well, yeah, but here's the funny thing, though, is that, like, they said, like, you know, you can go ahead and do it if I'm not here, and it was fine. But then – um but then, like, the superintendent showed up. And then uh, after I got through, like, the, the beginning part of the liturgy kind of stuff, she yeah. was like, hey, I'm just going to I'm just gonna do the communion part. Yeah. And I was like, that's the part I want to do. Yeah. That's the only it's... good magic stuff I can do. And, like, you're not going to let me do it. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's quite a rush presiding over the sacraments. It's great. It's, I... a, great, it's a great rush of adrenaline. Yeah, it really is. It's like uh, Indiana Jones. Sort of uh, it's like, face melting kind of situation. Oh, I was gonna say it's like that where he's like taking the the golden statue off and replacing it with <laughs> <laughs> with Hawaiian bread. Yeah, <laughs> it's like taking the body of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. That's what um, it's. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I was I'm no longer allowed, but uh, like in the Free Methodist Church, which is like pretty low church Protestant yeah. denomination, not. Like, at least on the books, not very, like, strict uh, in their hierarchical organization. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't have to go to seminary. No, you don't. I did. Um, but most most people don't. You just take a class. Uh, well, more. You take a few classes. Okay. They do, they do like, uh, like a winter term type thing in Indianapolis. Oh. Uh, but I was, like, pretty far along. And, like, I was allowed to preside over the sacraments. Um, at the invitation of oh, some, an ordained elder. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, so. what's interesting in, in all of that is that, like, to me it seems like an... Uh, to me it seems unnecessary, first of all. But, like, there's probably a good reason for it that I just don't understand. Um, but uh, there's a real exclusivity in, in it. There's a real, like, hierarchical order to it. And uh, sort of like an elitist kind of situation so is the feeling I get. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Boff has something way different in mind, um, where 
uh, things are way more horizontal, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so he imagines the organizations of the um, the base communities as having a much more prominent position in the the makeup of the church proper than they were given at the time that he wrote this. I'm I'm not really sure. Maybe Dean can clear this up. Uh, <laughs> uh, like how much influence this. Yeah, this is had. sad. So Both imagines the the church uh, in a kind of interesting response to uh, Jacques Maritain's like dual cosmology, where there's like the spiritual sphere and the worldly sphere. Um, he imagines two realms of authority within the church. Um, one is societal, and the other communal. Um, but these two. Uh, these two spheres are never like considered without the other. Um, so he's using a what's probably a pretty old and maybe dated uh, sociological term terminology here: uh, society versus community. I don't know. Maybe any sociologists listening can tell us that this is dumb now or something. Set straight on that. Yeah. So the society and the community are these two different spheres. In this uh, account where a community, he says, is a social formation in which human beings are oriented by a sense of reciprocity and belonging. Um, and he, he imagined this as a kind of uh, microcosm. Whereas a society, by contrast, is a social formation in which anonymity and indirect relationships prevail. So the societal is... Um, a uh, wider view of the the kind of hierarchical makeup of the institution, um, its uh, institutional unity across geographic space, and the community communities are more tight knit. Um, they're uh, they derive a lot of their meaning from uh, the the needs and desires of their particular community. Yeah, um, Both describes this in like a really nice way, or a, a way that I really like. I don't know. I don't know how nice it is for the rest of y'all, but I like it. So Both says this. This is like in the fourth page of the book, so um, it's good. He says, Christian life in the basic communities is characterized by the absence of alienating structures, by direct relationships, by reciprocity, by a deep communion, by mutual assistance, by communality of gospel ideals, by equality among members. So you get that you get that sort of feeling of of what the community looks like for him. Um, definitely different than I think most churches look like in general. Not yeah. I mean just like anywhere. Yeah. But like a good like a good articulation of what churches should be like, I guess. Maybe that's a good segue to switch gears and talk more about the radical elements of the book. Um, I think like the radical stuff is sort of scattered throughout, but um, it starts uh, getting really interesting by the fourth chapter or so. The so the fourth chapter begins by uh, offering a kind of historical account of some various conferences um, which lay people attended um, within the Catholic Church in Latin America. And um, it's the, the lay people primarily who come to the unanimous decision that um, there were... Um, so I'll just read this quote here. Um, On two points, opinion was unanimous. First... The main root of this oppression is the elitist, exclusive, capitalist system. And two, 
people resist and are liberated to the extent that they unite and create a network of popular movements. And so these are the conclusions come to by the, the, the lay people. And so what Boff is advocating is that the Catholic Church recognize this and, and either do something about it or help the local networks do something about it. Yeah, that's um, also like kind of parenthetically, um, what I really like about this book too is that it's not just Boff sort of theologizing out of, out of thin air, you know, just saying things that he likes to say. Uh, these are all, these are like observations sort of based in, uh, I'm sorry, these are theological principles that he's kind of uh, taking out of observations about lay people. Um, something I really like, um, and something that is, I think, an inherently leftist idea, is that like uh, normal people uh, are actually smart <laughs> and like <laughs> want was good for them, <laughs> like uh, kind of a, a wild idea uh, in our sort of political economy. But yeah, it doesn't seem that most people think that. <laughs> no, most people think that regular people are very dumb, and that's um, that's not good. Actually, they're not. Yeah, they. I I think people generally know stuff yeah i mean especially when it comes to like their material reality right like people know that like i mean you can be deceived by ideology and yeah, all kinds sure. of things but like i don't know <laughs> people aren't stupid that's all i'm trying to say here yeah. <laughs> okay um well so boff definitely supports this more horizontal structure that recognizes um that there's like something good about community there's something um not always very desirable about hierarchy um, here's my question, Zach, that I think is, I mean, I don't know how we'd even answer this, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. So do you think that Boff thinks, um, that horizontalism is good in, in and of itself or is horizontalism sort of like a, um, is some, is it just something good that they have to work with? Like the shortage of clergy make horizontalism necessary, or do you think that he thinks that horizontalism is actually good? I think he thinks that it's actually good in itself. I mean, it might be that it's only something that he could recognize as good because of his his contextual location as a Latin American Catholic in this historical time. But he still wants to maintain... So while, while he still... He seems to definitely appreciate um, the horizontalism or a kind of flattened hierarchy within the local parish, he's still... Uh, he has a lot of good things to, to say and think about the idea of a of a hierarchy more generally right he doesn't he doesn't go uh he doesn't go that far to abolish hierarchy in general but he no he uh definitely has a different take on it than i think um others might yeah so hierarchy is for him it it should always be subservient to the needs and and the desires of the local churches or the the base communities these are the things that the hierarchy is four, and the the logic he uses to get there is uh, the the Vatican II language about uh, ordination and how priests are always ordained to a congregation. Um, so priests can't just be ordained; they have to um, be ordained and attached to a kind of community. And Boff uses this logic to say that well, the the hierarchy then. Um, always exists for the local communities. If it becomes detached from the, the needs of the base communities um, or obscures what is actually good for them for the purposes of its own uh, authority 
then it has failed in its duty. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I think that's a pretty cool insight. Uh, a few weeks ago, when Dean and I were talking to Derek Ford again, um, we talked a little bit about party structure, and um, Derek said something that was, I mean, smart. He said he was talking about like Leninist organizations and democratic centralism, and he was saying like democratic centralism is good because it works. And, um, <laughs> like in like terms of like, I don't know, it works in like the material conditions. And I think that Boff is saying something kind of similar, but, uh, a little bit more geared towards the community. Like hierarchy is only good insofar as that serves the community insofar as it serves like the, I don't know, the actual like good of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it also serves a, a unifying function for, uh, at least for a Christian church for him, at least, um, it's what marks the visible community of Christ in the world that spans, you know, the the world. Yeah. So you you mean unity insofar as like the unity of like church structure or something or what? What is that? What do you mean by unity in that sense? So for Boff, the unity of the church is defined in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first is a kind of ideological commonality where uh he understands that the base communities are only church insofar as they are driven by explicitly christian motivations but there's also the sense of the uh the relationship between the universal and the particular and i'll, I'll read a quote here uh it's on page 16 if you want to follow along in your hymnals uh, the universality of the church resides in the universality of God's salvific offer. But this salvific mystery is manifested in space and time, and in being revealed, it takes on the particularities of ages and places. So, unity is this universal found in the particular. Um, and he has this very strong sense of uh, the priests, those who are ordained to congregations, being charged with the ministry of unity, and their job is not to manifest or manufacture unity, but rather discover it, discover the providence of God in the communities to which they are ordained. So I'm really interested in the ways that we define unity hierarchically, um, and I was hoping for a stronger critique of this from Boff. And while I find his uh, sort of displacement of the primacy of hierarchy uh, very interesting and, and compelling, um, what I'm interested in, at least in my own work, is the displacement of hierarchy altogether uh, in terms of how it constitutes the unity of the church. Yeah, I mean, that's that was the paper that you had, right? It was, it was about <laughs> displacing hierarchy <laughs> at large, right? That was, your, that was the point. That was uh, what made the pastor so upset. Well, yeah, that was sort of what I was hinting at towards the end of that paper. and I think the strongest part of that paper, sorry, not no one else has read it or heard it but me. That's good. Dean was there. He was there, so, so he'll know. He'll know. <laughs> he'll appreciate this conversation. <laughs> Him alone. Yeah, I mean, if we can only, I mean, wherever two or three are gathered. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was good, especially good, too, though, was, was that you were, re you were replacing hierarchy with specifically, like, non-Western relations. Yeah, so a helpful angle that I've found for thinking about um, the identity of the church itself is thinking about 
I mean, this is a very uh, biblical view, if I don't if I don't say so myself, uh, of the uh, the sort of Pauline vision of the church as the body of Christ and recognizing the body of Christ as uh, kind of enigmatic and unplaceable, um, and uh, also ra- un- undetectable. So uh, the, the sort of scripture that I was meditating on the most in in my paper was about uh, there's the separating of the sheep from the goats, where Jesus's followers are all like really super surprised that they encountered him at all. Um, when he says, Oh, Hey, uh, anytime that you gave some, somebody, uh, water or food or uh cloak, that was me. And every time that you didn't, that was also me. So you screwed up. Um, all, all he's talking to his followers there and all these people who in, in like ecclesiological definitions would have been like, these are the people who are following Jesus. Um, failed to recognize um, the body of Christ. And so I think it's, it seems uh, pretty clear to me that the body of Christ is um, porous and dynamic. Um, right. I mean, it's like a weird thing, though, where, where like non-Christians end up being like actually very important to the story of like who Jesus is. Yeah. That's wild, right? Like no one thinks about that. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Jesus is these people. Yeah. Um, on that point, here's a fun segue. Um, this is a quote I like from the book that I think um, maybe does a little bit with what we're just talking about here. This is a quote on page 38 in case anyone uh, really cares. What page is on? Uh, Boff is talking about um, like the importance of pursuing social justice uh, in the church. Uh, Okay, so Boff says, in order to achieve the social justice so wanting in today's discriminatory society, one must live the faith as a factor of transformation of social relationships. Christians in the Brazilian reality who oppose qualitative changes in society are not just conservative citizens. They are disloyal to the gospel, since they are being deaf to the cry of the oppressed that rises up on all sides. Um, So the connection there seems pretty clear to me, that there's like, um, there's a real, like, not it's like it's more than just a preferential option for the poor it's that like jesus jesus does stuff with the poor that we should pay attention to and that if you don't you're being disloyal to the call of the gospel but but framing it in the way that you do is is really interesting because uh it it does introduce a type of i don't know i don't know if it really gets rid of hierarchy but it definitely like introduces a whole lot of people that you just wouldn't ever think about and about like how those these people that you wouldn't think about are actually very important to christian life yeah, so I'm sort of taking my cue in that like interpretive leap from Matthew 25 from uh, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, who is a mujerista theologian from the United States who died in uh, somewhere around 2008, I think. Um, and uh, mujerista theology is uh, a branch of liberationist theology that takes as its uh, primary authority the uh, the life and the experiences of Hispanic women. And so its primary method is basically saying like whatever is not um, liberative to Hispanic women is therefore not the gospel. And seeing the particular oppression of Hispanic women in the United States, uh, Isasi Diaz identifies this persecuted Christ 
with these Hispanic women. Um, and I, I sort of took some liberties with this interpretive move to uh, try and define an ecclesiology that was inclusive of people who maybe aren't Christian um, and how we can maybe understand um, the church as a body with parts that it cannot apprehend. Who do you think the Martin Luther of wrestlers is? Mankind. Whoa. <laughs> it's got to be. Why what, Why do you say that? Uh, there's no more iconoclastic wrestler. Yeah, that's true. It's got to be Mankind. And what, I mean... And he's sort of like two-faced too, you know? Could he's got... Socko be John Calvin maybe? No, uh... no, no. It would be Phil Melanchthon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All the all the reform people will probably get that. Or maybe I just totally screwed it up cuz I'm not reformed. So they're all you can't hear them but they're laughing right yeah, now. Yeah, good. I hope so. <laughs> That'll make me feel really good. <laughs> Who do you think is the pope of wrestling? Uh Vince McMahon. Oh, I get, well yeah, that was kind I of mean, a like he, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. Is he even still part? Is he part of the game? Did he? I don't get, know. Did the? Did he? Did he pass on? No, he's still alive. I think. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, if he had died, we would have heard like Trump tweet about it or something. That's true. Uh, Vince McMahon, I think, in Trump's eyes, is probably a because Trump beat him in a wrestling uh, tournament. Yeah, he really made him a, a cuck or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm honestly not very familiar with that mythology there. Uh, the the wrestling mythology or the well, I just don't know in what in what facet Donald Trump beat Vince McMahon. Me either. But the, there is that gif of him shaving Vince McMahon's head, I believe. Yeah, and also hitting him with a a chair, right? Or is that a different? Oh, I think that's I think that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's it for the Magnificast this week. Uh, thanks, Zach, for being here uh, with all your church history knowledges and. Uh, Really great takes on wrestling, I guess. <laughs> uh, if you hated these last two episodes, uh, you'll be glad to know that Dean will be back next week. And uh, we've got some cool stuff coming up. Uh, again, sign up for the Virilio Reading Group. That's happening. It's coming up. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Beside what else are you gonna do? Is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater 
fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown Saw a spark in your eyes, I just spoke it Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down Then you said, my dear, do you really mean this? I said, I only know what I feel right now I said, poets lie, sometimes come true Stay awake with me, wait, see what we can do Poets lie, sometimes come true Stay awake with me, wait, see what we can do in my town I don't want to get up for church in the morning Church in the morning, souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, this the kind of town, folks get stuck in, yeah people get stuck here, but I chose to stay, if you ever want to know something, or know some place, you just can't know them all. At some point, you must make a choice and choose some place and make a home. There was a time not long ago when we look out this window and see a wolf pack running free. Except there'd be no window or this building separating us from all.